You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 54 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. In this episode, we are chatting with Dr. Spencer Pelton, the Wyoming State Archaeologist and friend of the podcast. He was the first guest we ever interviewed on the show, and we are very excited to catch up with him today. How are you doing this evening, Dr. Pelton? I'm doing great. Thanks, Carlton, for having me back. It's a real pleasure. Absolutely. So is it scary to know that so far your episode has been downloaded 2,206 times as of this morning? Oh, that's, that's uh, more than I thought. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's consistently downloaded every month. What's the demographic? Do you get a you like age region or is it just uh, a bunch of undergrads that are forced to watch it for some reason? Mostly forced, we imagine. I know uh, Dr. <laughs> Kelly's episode has been a frequent class assignment for several of our colleagues at this point. I think you were definitely in the lead for a long time, and Dr. Kelly has eclipsed basically everyone on the podcast, <laughs> to, to no surprise at this point. But with that, you know, since we last had you on, you're working was for the BLM, correct? No, I was working for the private sector last I was on here. So I was working for, uh, yeah, Transcon Environmental. Transcon, and, uh, and, yeah. yeah. And now you're the the Wyoming archaeologist. How does that feel? I love it, man. It's my dream job. It was uh, thrilled to get it. I didn't think it would come up, but uh, it did, and so I figured I had to had to pounce on it, and it worked out. Yeah, I love it. It's. Uh, I saw you had in USA Today. It was like news for Wyoming, and the most news Wyoming had was that it named another state archaeologist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. USA Today has that feature where they have like you know, like someone wrestled a bear in Idaho last week, and like uh, you know, somebody like noodled the biggest catfish in Georgia, and that. <laughs> for, yeah, I was I was the news blurb from Wyoming that week, so. Yeah, it was a pretty slow, slow week, I'm imagining. But yeah, it was a good thrill. I got, you know, all the old ladies from the church I grew up in, like, saw it there. You know, it's, it's kind of yeah. neat. <laughs> nice. I was getting, like, physical newspaper clippings in the mail, like, like the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> Dope. It's probably exciting not to hear, like, about budget crises and that they're actually hiring people in Wyoming. So that was probably a good change of change of pace there. Yeah, it was good. I mean, they, you know, they have to have a state archaeologist, so <laughs> it's, it's job security. Uh, that's the good thing about it. They can't just cut it, but you know, they could just like, you know, make me lock myself in an office, I guess, and never go anywhere. But and your office is 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 it at the University of Wyoming, like with the Anthro Department? Yeah, the cool thing about this job is it's you know it's set out in statute that you're a faculty member in the department. It's kind of unique in that way. I don't think a ton of I don't think a ton of state archaeologist positions are like that. So yeah, my office is actually in the anthropology department on campus. So it's kind of this dual, you know, academic and government kind of position that's uh, not a little unlike a lot of the positions, state archaeologist positions around the country. I always like that about Wyoming because you got Shippo upstairs, and then you got you know all of. Uh the department there. And then you also have that little museum in the same building and curation. So it was like, if I had a curation problem that was like a mess up from the eighties. I could go upstairs and be like, Hey Ross, what is this? And he was like, Oh, I remember that. And like took me on a hour long talk, but yeah. no, it's awesome. I mean, compare that to say like, well, the only reason you, why we can do that is because we have whatever, 600,000 people. Right. So right. it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for that stuff to be spread out all over the state. 
but compared to like California, for instance, I don't, I don't remember how many they have like nine shippos or something like that spread out throughout the state. And it's just kind of madness. And you, yeah, you, Wyoming, it just breeds a really nice tight community for that reason. Cause everybody's literally in the, in the same building. Not everybody, of course, there's people doing archeology span all over the state, but where all the data is stored and all the artifacts are stored, it's all in one place. It really works out in convenient ways for a lot of reasons that I don't think you'd necessarily get in many other settings in the, around the country. Yeah. For Fair sure. enough. So how is that process like when, I, I don't know what happened to the former state archaeologist, but there was a call for it. How many people applied for that position? Do you know? I don't know how many well, there were total. There's a lot. I think there was several, several dozen because it's a, I mean, it's a pretty high paid position. Be quite honest. Like it's a pretty sought after position for that reason. <laughs> and I didn't really realize, I didn't really realize that until I, it was advertised. Like, Oh, that's yeah. Okay. That's why people want this job. But yeah, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people applied for it from all over the country because it's a, you know, you have to have a PhD to have the job. And so it was a pretty rigorous process. I mean, they announced it in like March and then I didn't start the job till the November of, uh, of 2019. And so it was, you know, a long process of like vetting resumes, I guess. I wasn't part of it, obviously. And then there was one round of interviews. I made it through. There's a second round of interviews that had like a public talk component. And then I was finally offered the job. It was, yeah, it was the most rigorous job process I've ever been through. It was a lot like the academic hiring process. You know, I haven't, I haven't really, I didn't really apply for too many academic jobs. So I didn't really make it, make it down the line that very far, but it seemed a lot like that with multiple rounds of interviews and like campus visit and all that stuff. I I very much enjoy the job. I'm extremely grateful that I have it. Really happy it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's anyone more qualified and like, you know, for, for that position and, as, as part of that, are you lecturing? Are you you know required to teach a class or anything like that? Yeah, uh, our whole office teaches. So we got, you know, the office manages. We have an assistant state archaeologist, Marsha Peterson. We got a curation manager. And then we have a survey section manager. So we teach three, three classes in total, curation, CRM. And then uh, my position traditionally taught a class called public archaeology. But um, I, I switched it over to a new class called Wyoming Archaeology. Me and Rich Adams actually developed this together. And so it's just intended to be a big general education class intended to fulfill like a humanities credit or something for undergrads. It's called Wyoming Archaeology because it's catchy and sounds interesting. (laughs) But we're, I mean, my my hope is that it's like a backdoor into like every ranch across the state to to like do archaeology on private lands on ranches I guess so we get we get these like ranch kids coming into the <laughs> university and you get them psyched about it and like uh, uh yeah that that's kind of like the one one intention of putting together a class like that I guess that's a real power move I respect that so you're denying the next level of grad students the ability to make their own cover songs like Clovis Paradise because I that's what that class was for, for uh, like, sure, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I made a whole album of parody songs for Greg who was just like thanks I guess I'll never listen to these ever again no I I uh so I guess in my mind I, I think that public class is a really great thing but to some extent, like every archaeologist is a public archaeologist now. Like, I, I don't know any archaeologist that's like, no, I wholeheartedly refuse to talk to the public. I think they're awful. I just want to put myself in my office, do my thing and not talk to anybody. You know, I'm sure there's a few of those people left, but like for the most part, like every archaeologist is a public archaeologist now, uh, especially, you know, people our age and younger 
you all are younger than me, but you know what I mean, that are engaged with social media and, and all that, all that shit. So I, I figured we could just take, like, roll the public thing into kind of a more traditional, like, curriculum-based class. So th- those same messages will definitely be in that class of, like, you know, how we should uh, treat the archaeological record, how we should preserve it, how we should, all, all the all the traditional messages you'd have in a public archaeology class, how to how to uh, counter, like, pseudoscience and that kind of thing, except be more focused on Wyoming archaeology specifically. Do you teach it from, like, Clovis to Cowboys, like, whatever that poster is, and, like, go through the eras, or is it more like, here's what you know, Doug? Rich's idea was to do it actually from, like, the present back. And like finish with paleo Indian stuff, which is like, I mean, I, so his, his rationale was like, you know, Oregon trail stuff and like historic military stuff, all that stuff's a lot more relatable to people uh, initially, because you're familiar with the artifacts, you're familiar with the history to some extent. And so it's a better entry point than jumping into, Hey, did you know, like 13,000 years ago, there were like sloths and camels and stuff around. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and like just making that somebody's entry point to archaeology is oftentimes a little disorienting probably Makes it's cool sense. but it's also like you don't have anything to kind of relate to so yeah we'll start start in the historic era and kind of work our way back well rich is a little biased too he likes the late prehistoric contact stuff anyway so you know you get to the really good stuff yeah, yeah, and anything true. past that is just like a joke you know it's it's the archaic you know it's Clovis or whatever. Yeah. You know, you get, you get hit soapstone really early. So (laughs) I guess my, our next like big question and probably the audience listening is like, what's a state archeologist. And like, could you explain that a bit? Yeah. I'm kind of still trying to figure it out myself, but, um, I can, (laughs) I can figure it out. I'm figuring it out and I can explain what I figured out so far. So not every state has one, but most of them do. And to my understanding, like most of them were established in the early 70s towards the early 80s, like alongside the National Historic Preservation Act. And that like kind of basically forming a new field called cultural resource management. So in a lot of states, the state archaeologist is actually also the state historic preservation officer. They do a lot of the compliance stuff like, you know, when a pipeline gets built, the state archaeologist is the one that like reviews the report for it. And so they're super compliance centric. I actually think that like Colorado even is, is a lot more like that than we are. Uh, other state archaeologists are attached to museums. So like uh, whatever, the, the State Museum of Iowa or something will have a state archaeologists attached to it. I don't know if that's actually true, but just as an example. Uh, I think Colorado one, does. Yeah, Colorado's state archaeologist is at History Colorado, which is the State Historic Museum at this point. Yeah, they're, they're the museum and like also basically SHPO, I think. Mm-hmm. So they kind of do everything out of that. This position, which is awesome, is 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 very much like a, a research, public outreach, education position. So it's it's specifically in-state statute says that you have to do research on Wyoming prehistory on significant sites in Wyoming. It also says like if somebody finds something cool on their ranch, you gotta go look at it. It says that like in the law. The other the the final component of it that it's a pretty recent addition as I recover human remains from private and state lands in Wyoming when those pop up. So now there's a law in Wyoming that if burials pop up on private lands, the state archaeologist goes goes and deals with that. So that's kind of the next big component of it. And it's actually a really big component of it. It took up like probably a third of my year last year responding to those calls. Wow. Wow. Uh, and then 
so in addition to that, we do run the, the curation facility as well. That's, a, that's another big, and we have a survey section that does work for like wide up. So we, we wear a lot of hats, but my position specifically is like education, research, public outreach, and, and human, human remains recoveries. Do you think that, that the reason that this position is the way it is, is be largely because of the first stake archaeologist and, and kind of his legacy? I mean, that's, that was George Frizen's goal is to, you know, be friends with every rancher and, and find all this archaeology and really, and also be just connected with the public. Do you, so do you think this is kind of a product of that? To some extent, except, you know, George didn't write the statute that formed this position. William Malloy did. Okay. And so, so basically William Malloy, who was uh, the anthropology professor at, at UW in the sixties, like, like Frizen's Frizen was an undergrad under Malloy as was Dennis Stanford, some other folks. When Malloy wrote that position, I suspect that he had someone like Frizen in mind for it, but he didn't really want to, but Malloy himself didn't want to take on the position because he had started doing stuff in Easter Island and he really wasn't around Wyoming much anymore. And so he, when he wrote it, I think he was really had somebody like Frizen in mind. And really, you know, Frizen did come to kind of define the position in a lot of ways. He held it for 19 years or something like that. So he had it, he had it for a real, really long time. And then, and then Mark Miller after him and Greg after, after him. So I'm number four now, but there's just two people, Mark, Mark and, and George, Mark Miller and George Frizen really had the position for the majority of its existence. Hmm. And Mark very much also kind of like lived up to that legacy as well. He was all of it. Mark had a, Mark had a lot more focused on like kind of the historic era and working on immigrant trail stuff and military stuff. But uh, he, he was all over the state as well, talking to people about that stuff. I think I had talked to you about it, but I'd applied to be state archaeologist of Tennessee. Yeah, and, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and I got all those interview questions, and it was very, like, just seemed like I'd be sitting in, you know, the Nashville Capitol listening to budget stuff and, like, defending archaeology, which that was a no for me. But <laughs> is there a lot of that at Wyoming, or do you more get to just do what you want to do? Uh, there's definitely some some politicking involved especially budget stuff of course because wyoming's always broke it seems like and and also there's all the stuff that have to do with hiring we hire a lot of people you you all have probably worked for this office before i don't remember if you have or not working in curation so there's all that stuff to deal with but for the most part like i i get a lot of freedom to to do whatever i want with this job and to really direct the office in whatever way we want as long as we're you know fiscally responsible and not doing crazy stuff we're not doing anything like super controversial i don't know what that would be but yeah as long as we kind of just keep our head down and make wyoming archaeology look as awesome as possible i think we're i think we're good uh and that's really i mean in, in a nutshell what our job is is to just make sure that people around the state respect archaeology and are interested in it and, and have opportunities to it to engage with it directly so that uh Wyoming's cultural resources are kind of brushed aside or treated frivolously in, in the end. That's awesome. It seems like you enjoy it though, too. So I guess that's the main part. Yeah, it's great. I, it'd be hard not to enjoy it, honestly. I, I love it. I guess if you really hated Wyoming, uh, that'd probably be a really bad job for you, but I really like <laughs> Wyoming. So. <laughs> so how many calls like during the year do you get from ranchers or like people who are kind of reaching out? be like, I found this on my land. Can you come look at it kind of thing? Every couple of weeks I get something at least, but I don't look at every single one of them. 
like for instance, I don't look at the ones that claim like the medicine wheel is in an astrological alignment with Chaco Canyon and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, like, uh, so, Oh, Oh, the, uh, temple of the, the moon, the moon at Teotihuacan. I don't really respond to that, believe it or not. And I'm sorry if that this is off your Graham Hancock contention or whatever, but, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I, I get, I get more of those than you think every six months or so I get something like, like that. But, you know, sometimes like truly phenomenal stuff comes in. Like just last week, somebody reached out, um, you know, their father passed away. He had like 60 frames of artifacts from the Southern Bighorns. He had locations for all of them, specific sites. And so this is like a massive donation of stuff that at least has some semblance of uh, of provenience data attached to it that we're going to end up dealing with. So stuff like that pops up like like extraordinary stuff like that, maybe every, every several months or something like that. And Chris then, Rowe um, has entered the chat. <laughs> and, and on that note, um, this first segment was sponsored by uh, Graham Hancock. Go read all his books, except for don't. Um, <laughs> and we'll catch you in the second segment. Welcome back to episode 54 of a life Earners podcast this is the second segment. We have Spencer. He was the first episode. So you probably listened to that one. I lost track of what I'm saying already, so I'm going to go right into it. Spencer, you already said that you do a lot of research for your position. What are you currently working on? I'm finishing up a couple projects I've been working on for years. The biggest one, I guess, is the Powers to Hematite Quarry. It's a Paleo-Indian Hematite Quarry near near the Hell Gap National Historic Landmark. Used uh, between about 12,800 and 12,100 years ago, at least. That's been a really amazing experience. That was something that George Frizen brought me in on like five, six years ago. And we just finished up excavations there last summer and are writing it up right now. We're almost done. We're just waiting for some radiocarbon dates to come in. And then that'll be out there as the, the officially the oldest hematite quarry in the Americas. That's so cool. So pretty excited about that. The other big site that we've been working on the last several years is the Sister Seal Paleo Indian site. It's a stem point site. So it's got a hell gap component for, you know, something that's about 11,000 years old. And then a Cody component, a little younger, like 10, 10, eight or something like that. And we finished that up last summer as well. That felt really good and writing that up as well. So going forward, I guess, big research projects we got coming out of our office have to do with ceramics. So kind of leaving the Paleo Indian period a little bit and getting into the late prehistoric period. And we're putting together a guidebook for ceramics in Wyoming. It kind of summarizes all the major traditions so that when you, when you find ceramics in Wyoming, hopefully you don't just call it Intermountain Grayware like everybody does. <laughs> everybody just calls everything Intermountain Grayware because nobody really knows ceramics in the mountains or in the high plains all that well. And understandably so. They don't I mean they're not like they're not beautifully painted they don't have like super diagnostic attributes a lot of times watch it now you gotta have, to have like a really good eye for for how they were made and, and what their distinctive attributes are if i can paraphrase you all ceramics in wyoming are crap and anything that carlton studies is also crap so i'm just i'm just <laughs> you know i think reading into what you're saying so go yeah, sorry sorry to interrupt now the central plains tradition stuff's like some of the more like elaborate stuff in Wyoming as far as I can tell. <laughs> Most of it's just like grayware is a good way to describe it, I guess. I'm kind of nerding out on this now, but yeah, it's just very, if you don't have a good eye for it and like the nuances of how it was made, what the surface treatments were, all, you know, the rim shapes and stuff, and it kind of just all looks the same. 
So we're trying to pull together all that into some meaningful semblance of order so that we, people can actually understand what these things are and, and, and deal with them accordingly. The other big thing, so George Frizen had another kind of big unfinished project in an area called the Chain Lakes, which is like in probably one of the more remote places in the entire state, northwest of Rollins in the Great Divide Basin. And uh, a guy named Bill Scoggin found, I don't know, 150, 160 Paleo-Indian points around these lakes out there. And it's been written up as like just the assemblage, his collection, but nobody's actually documented the sites, like done a surface survey or tested or anything. So we're going out to start that this this summer. Me and Chase Mahan are, are working on that together. And he's also doing some raw material sourcing as part of that. Sick. Those are the two big things we're doing this summer. We're doing a couple of public excavations as well, but these are kind of more public education initiatives as opposed to like long-term research projects. Nice. Well, I don't know if you know, but I got this, the cave in the background. You can't see it now. Uh-huh. It's all powers to ochre on like a lot of it. Cause I got a big bag of it. Oh, nice. Do you actually just put the ochre directly on the wall or do you mix it in with anything? Like how, how do you deal with it? So yeah, there's a lot of like, it's conjecture on how all that was done really. So I tried to like figure out different ways to do it. So I ended up using coconut oil that didn't work. Then I used <laughs> butter and that didn't work. Uh, and then I used, um, I could just, some just weird, like, something that was fat to bind it, you know? And then Chris gave me some like, I forget what it's called, but that worked. But I ended up just chewing it up and then spitting it onto the wall, and that worked. But it also, the power stew ochre comes out of a quarry, and there were a lot of fine little granules in there, and I swallowed a lot of rocks. So, <laughs> that was, so we, we made a video about making paint last summer. Yeah, it was like after I did COVID that, and I was fair. mad. I think, th- I think she used like Crisco or something. I can't remember what she used, but... You know, Chris, Crisco, that's just animal fat, right? So, yeah, I mean, butter makes sense. It's like coconut oil. It's like vegan paint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Didn't work, but maybe I just didn't do it right. And then also to, like, <laughs> blow the handspray, I assume they used, like, shells or a turtle shell because they didn't have pottery yet. So I got a turtle shell and then used, like, a little straw. That didn't work either, so... I'll get back to you guys when I when I get the <laughs> experimental archaeology down. Yeah, the paint thing is an interesting topic. Like, so now we got we got four hematite quarries now in the Americas. There had to have been more of them though, but like a lot of these quarries are probably associated with iron mines and copper copper mines, and so they probably all got destroyed. Like, it'd be really really easy to destroy every hematite, <laughs> every prehistoric hematite quarry in the, in the entirety of the Americas because iron was such a sought after mineral. But luckily, we have four preserved, one of which is, is underwater. So that's the only reason it probably survived <laughs> in the Yucatan Peninsula. And the, the other ones are also, I mean, they're associated with modern mines as well. So have you guys found found out or like studied any like how they actually processed the hematite at Powers 2 or at any of these other sites? No, I mean, the cool thing with that ochre... It's like, so if you're painting yourself, you don't really have to process it at all. I mean, all, all you have to do is chunk it out of the ground and and rub it on yourself. I mean, it's it, you don't really have to do anything more, more to it than that. And when we actually, you know, this last summer, we actually finished the block and got down to bedrock. And 
and and found the quarry, the quarry pit, like the actual mine. And it's this low spot that you could see at the surface. Have you all been out there? I can't remember if you all been out there or not. Yeah. yeah. But you remember how there's like that, there's kind of like a ditch at the surface that we yeah. were digging through. So that ditch is, is the quarry. And then the bottom of that ditch, there's actually depressions that have been excavated into the bedrock, into this soft silver hematite where people were chipping that stuff out of bedrock using antlers and ribs primarily. So once you actually chip it out of the bedrock, it's this like silver, kind of greasy silver material. It's, it's, it's wild stuff. And so it's, it's silver, but it paints red. So, so it's like literally magic. It's like so that's what that definition is. It's literally <laughs> it really is. I remember when I visited, the first thing I thought was, "Wow, these guys should be wearing masks or respirators because these guys are all getting the lung cancer twenty years from now." <laughs> and this, <laughs> the second thing was, "Can you source hematite?" Yeah, I mean, we think we can. We source the the Laprell mammoths kill hematite to there. Basically, Laprell mammoth kills like eighty kilometers from this site, and and it's a Clovis site that has a ton of ochre in it. And we used inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry to source that. That was really headed up by Sandra Zarsichka. And so the, the way you do it, you take a sample from the source, you take a sample from another source, ideally another source and another source, and then you compare those sources to what's at your site. We only did two natural sources but of those two, the the ochre from the Laprell site was like much more similar to the stuff from Powers Two on the basis of of trace element signatures. Yeah, and, then, and trace elements are like you know tiny tiny amounts, so you can't use XRF, you can't use X-ray f- fluorescence because it doesn't really get the trace elements. It gets the minor elements, but not like those tiny tiny like parts per billion quantities that you're looking for um, bet- between different hematites. The thing I should say though is. Hematite from iron sources is like much different than hematite you might find like in oxidized sandstones or like in a very, very old soil where it's become like, like a redoxified soil. And so I think in general, hematite from iron mines just has a very different qualitative attributes, but also like very different chemical attributes than than other sorts of hematite because it it forms in a fundamentally different environment. You know, it's forming in pre-Cambrian geologic environments which are like a billion years old as opposed to like stuff that formed during the whatever the mesozoic or cenozoic that are only a couple hundred million years old so for that reason the trace elements are super distinct and in, in all that pre-cambrian stuff yeah the reason why i ask is that we find in cpt lower loop and like historic pawnee sites like we find a lot of hematite but we also get a lot of the raw material in central nebraska is heartville uplift that is coming mm-hmm. in from like Western Nebraska, Eastern Wyoming. So I've always been curious, the ochre that we find in a lot of these contexts, is it also coming from powers because that's in the Hartville uplift and that's where I know a lot of these folks were going to get the raw material. No, that's super interesting. I, did, I didn't know that. You should, you should totally source it. I mean, I, I would guess, yes, it probably is. But because so there's a great anecdote actually from a newspaper. I think it's from the Guernsey newspaper in like 1910. <laughs> <laughs> and it describes opening up one of these other mines in the area, another iron mine. And it describes this cavern that they found full of Native American artifacts, like pots and digging tools. And you could see scratches on the walls from mining. And it was totally 
a late prehistoric, probably being used up to contact like hematite quarry that was destroyed by this by this iron mine. But there was a pretty good detailed account about it. And it was actually like a depression in the ground that had been chipped out from, from quarrying hematite out of it. So we should expect to find this stuff everywhere. I mean, there, there was probably hematite quarries all through that iron mining district, all throughout prehistory. We just lucked into the oldest one there. It really probably the only one that's, that's preserved as far as we know. You should totally source it though. That'd be a fun project. I have enough money to spend on radiocarbon dates, but when I get my PhD, I'll get get back in contact. Cool. We'll swap some swap some paint and some coconut <laughs> oil. <laughs> Don't knock it. It's nature's uh you know, nature's oil. <laughs> Carlton had a question about Spanish diggings. Yeah, how to get its name. I was out in central Nebraska last week and I was hanging out with a bunch of ranchers on the property and they were like talking about Spanish diggings and ochre. And they actually mentioned George Frizen and I had to tell them the unfortunate news, but they were asking me like, how did they get the name Spanish diggings? And I was like, that's an excellent question. I'll get back to you with an answer next week because I know a guy who I'm talking to pretty soon who knows why it was named that. Yeah, my understanding was, you know, the first people that were in that region came upon these massive pits and places where like entire cliff sides had been broken down and collapsed into these big, big piles of chipping debris, as well as thousands of bifaces and all this kind of crazy stuff. And, and they assumed that the Spanish had done that, that the Spanish had like Spanish explorers when, when that was still, you know, very close to, to Mexico, basically had come up through that region and, and created those pits looking for gold or, or minerals. So they, ju- they didn't think that quarrying of the scale that you see as Spanish diggings was, would have been possible by Native Americans digging with, with antlers and, and, and rocks and stuff. So they assumed it was the Spanish in there with whatever explosives and stuff. <laughs> That's my understanding. European, uh, I mean, <laughs> European colonialists underestimating the ability of indigenous Americans. Get out of here. That never happens. <laughs> yeah. And also underestimating like 12,000 years of, of, you know, digging holes and how that might look on a landscape because that, that stuff is. So let's, is, let's contextualize. I feel like she could, she contextualize this a little bit. Nobody knew how long people had been living in North America at that, like in 1850 or whatever. Uh, that's true. Colonized, right. Nobody even knew, like, they had probably never seen a Native American, you know? Like, the first ranchers in there, and maybe the 18, that would have been probably the 1870s, 1880s. They were probably pretty clueless about, about like, <laughs> about what all that was. So, we got the name Spanish Diggings. They're like, I don't, that must have been the Spanish. I mean, that's a, that's a big hole. It must have been the Spanish. Because ain't nobody been here before us. <laughs> I think that was probably the attitude. Yeah. So t- the time that 13,000 years of, of people digging holes. Um, yeah. You can dig a lot of holes, even with antlers and, and everything. And you can move a lot of rock. And yeah, I've actually never been out there. Have you? No. I've recently got a connection to get, to get out there, which I'm going to pursue aggressively because I, I hear it's amazing. There's also crazy stuff out there. Like there's that like big 150 foot long effigy of like the dude with the arms up like this it's out there just really wild stuff it's like truly unique to to wyoming yeah and I've, I've i've worked on the periphery of like what you would call spanish diggings or like you know generally on the hartville uplift but it's, it's just a, it's an insane landscape and to try to like process it data wise is is just insane 
it's just like everywhere you everywhere you step, every outcrop or anything like that, people are digging and looking for stuff. Yeah, it hurts my brain. So I, I'd be really interesting to see how you feel. I mean, I certainly don't want to excavate a, a quartzite quarry myself. I don't think I'm going to be doing that. But my, my strategy in excavations going forward is basically like accumulate as few artifacts as possible and <laughs> still get good information out of it because dealing with artifacts is a huge issue, just curating them and, and writing them up. So the fewer artifacts you can pull out of the ground and get and answer your questions, the better. And, and really chert quarries and, and quartzite quarries is like the exact opposite of of what I really want to be excavating <laughs> at this point. <laughs> so a ton of artifacts to answer the question. Yeah, they were quarrying quartzite in church here. So I dug quite a bit of quartzite out of test pits for two summers. And it's very hard material. And it's like weirdly like dull, but not a bit also jagged at the same time. Like whatever that Hartville chert is. I think it's Spanish digging quartzite. Or like the quartzite that's out there. It's like yellow, brownish, mm-hmm. kind of like a tan color. There's lots of it. And at Guernsey too, there's just like bifaces everywhere. It's it's like a Jurassic Park of archaeology out there. It was pretty cool. But. Well, I think it's interesting that like of all the places they could have had, like chose to like have an army base, like archaeologically, that was probably like the worst decision they could have made because there's so <laughs> much actual archaeology out there and you know, they're put under a lot of pressure because of that. (laughs) It's it's insane. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if the Hartville uplift is like magical and that a lot of people live there. I I, I think a lot of people did live there. Like I I suspect that the Hartville uplift was truly like very, like a very attractive place throughout history, but also there's just tons and tons of rock to, to nap. And you can't ask for like, a worse like CRM situation, honestly, (laughs) just like putting, putting like a heavily traffic place right on top of, you know, really good raw material outcrops. It's crazy. They should have done it. Like it's a good place without raw material. Wyoming It's probably like the middle of the great divide basin. Actually, there's like not much rock out there. They should have done it there, but I don't think that they were really prioritizing their CRM burden. when they (laughs) Army national guard base. Yeah. They're not the most coordinated group of people you'd think they would be but sorry government if you're listening (laughs) um, (laughs) on that note let's end this segment and connor will bring us into segment three welcome back to episode 54 of a life in ruins podcast we're talking with dr spencer pelton who was our first guest and has had enough time to recover from the initial shock of being interviewed by us because it's a wild time and it's decided to uh, grace us again here right now. And we wanted to at least like bring in this last segment to talk a little bit about Dr. George Frizen. So he passed away late last year. Kind of, I don't remember the exact date. We have a message that came out on September 12th about what he meant to Wyoming archeology span and and kind of memorializing him as a really important figure in in Wyoming and in at least my life in terms of like I've I've always idolized him and things like that. And at the same point, two days later, we dropped an announcement saying that we weren't going to say any cuss words. So you know, take that for what it is. I think George Frizen might have made us like sober up and realize that we shouldn't cuss as much. 
you know, he, he did a lot of good in this world and he, he made us, he, he got us to cuss a lot less, but we wanted to talk about kind of his career and what he really means to Wyoming archeology. span So Spencer, how does it feel to like kind of sit in the, the same kind of seat that George was in at some point? Oh, it's a huge honor. Yeah, I guess let me. I'll address that from a couple angles. The first, from like a professional significance, and then, and then also his personal significance to the people in Wyoming. So, professionally, you know, his his influence extended well beyond Wyoming. Although he was very much associated, almost solely with Wyoming. I mean, it, he didn't really do much work outside of the state. Uh, he did a little bit of stuff in Montana, had some commentary on some, some stuff in Colorado. Went and jabbed a few elephants in Africa, but really like his, his corpus was all about Wyoming, but he took this state and made it relevant to a global archeological audience and in a super impactful and and real way. I mean, he's known all over the world for, for really a a couple main things. I I think mainly his his lasting legacy has has been his work on, on bones. He really, is, is underappreciated as a pioneer of zooarchaeology and of the techniques that we use to, to excavate and analyze bone beds. So when you read like, you know, a Vicuña bone bed paper from Argentina, it's like full of George Frizen citations. Same with like a horse bone bed from the upper Paleolithic of the central Russian plain. It's full of George Frizen citations because he really pioneered how you dig these things and what you can, can get out of them. So I, in my mind, like his, his primary kind of empirical contribution, the thing, uh, the way in which he, he took Wyoming archaeology, which is in a lot of ways defined by these bone beds and made them globally relevant, it's it centered around that, around zooarchaeology, taphonomy, that kind of thing. Obviously, he made a lot more contributions other than that that are more kind of local in, in scale. Uh, he really wrote the prehistory of this state and the Northern Plains in general, had a lot of really interesting insights about Paleo-Indians and how they lived. He excavated, of course, like the Agate Basin site, the Colby site, things that are also nationally, if not globally famous. But in terms of his methodological kind of theoretical contributions, I, I see zooarchaeology and taphonomy as like his, his big contribution. So he did all this while maintaining an, a, a super affable, great personality. And he was just a really good person and a really good leader of students and it's something that's not common among anybody to be able to to take a revolving door of students and people that work for them and really bring out their best qualities to have them produce really great products you always hear people talk about like so so-called great leaders and what it takes to be a great leader or whatever and it seemed to really come naturally to george frizen Whereas everybody that I've ever talked to that worked under him left with a good impression of him and thought that he made a positive impact on their life and on their career. And I, I can say the same. I mean, even in the, at the age of 90, really, when I started working with him, he made a big impact on, on my life and my career still at that age for the short time I got to work with him. So, yeah, I guess those are the two big things I'll say about him. And, and as far as stepping into, into those shoes, I, I really... I don't think about it like that. I mean, I can't really let it get to to my head too much. In the end, this is a state job that I love. We're all going to do it a little bit differently. I certainly taking some cues from the way George did the job, especially with his like 
super engagement with with avocationals and with collectors and, and ranchers and stuff across the state. I think that was a really important thing to do. And I, I have no hangups about doing that for, for that reason, because I, I see how positive it was for his career and for Wyoming archaeology in general. But in the grand scheme of things, like I, everybody will do this job differently. And I try not to think about it too much. I just I just want to do do what I do and and try to do it as best as I can not really worry about or not have too much self-awareness about like the legacy that I'm either stepping into or, or leaving behind. I know um, when I was there, one of the the many nuggets of wisdom that you bespoke, bestowed upon me, I remember one of our coffee hours, because you you were close with, with Doc Frizz and even as a PhD candidate, like you were one of the students that actually sat and like chatted with, with Doc and you had told the rest of us to do the same. They're like, you know, he's not that scary. Just go chat with Doc. He's just happy for the company. And I did that and Really, it was through Marcel. I asked I asked a question about Waldo Wadel, who's a was an archaeologist in Nebraska. And he's like, Come meet me at it's like that hotel north of campus for for happy hour. So I went. It's like him, Mary Lou, Rich was there, and George just chilling for this this happy hour. And I got to sit down with George for like two hours, just asking him questions. And it was a dawning moment for me to realize kind of George is a connection to like the past of archaeology, like all the past figures that he knew all of them personally, like Walter Wadell and some of the more famous like 60s and 70s archaeologists, like knew them first name basis. And to sit there knowing that a lot of these people had passed and George still remembers them like yesterday and to be able to talk to me how they were personally and, you know, including some of the more unsavory aspects of their personalities was just fascinating. And I think I remembered that when I heard George had passed, that we had lost that connection to a previous generation of archaeologists. And it was like a really solemn moment. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he, he had that direct and also to the leakies to like huge figures in, in anthropology. You know, the, the cool thing about it is when, when he became an archaeologist in the sixties, ranch kids from Tin Sleep did not get PhDs in archaeology. Right. Like at, at that time, like anthropology in general was such a, it was what, you know, really wealthy people from the East Coast did. Like people people that were like bored, <laughs> bored with their lives and wanted to, wanted to have a, a thinking man's job. They would go into that. Like ranch kids from Tinsley just didn't do that. And out of that 60s class at UW, we had both Dennis Stanford and, and George, both of which kind of came from these backgrounds. And on top of that, Douglas Owsley as well. I, I would throw him in there. He's from Lusk, Wyoming as well. I forgot about that. Yeah. And like, it was just this, something was happening in the department there. I, I really think it was William Malloy that really made the difference. He, he just inspired these people to be like, look, it doesn't matter where you come from. You can do whatever you want with your life. Go get a PhD in, in this if you want and, and do great things. That message to like a rural any any rural individual in the world now is such a powerful message to just be given that confidence to go out and do, do what you want and bring your perspective into the world in a unique way that really kind of upsets things and like brings something new into the into the picture. I, I really respect him for that as well. Right, so yeah, and talking about how George ended up meeting like all the most significant people in, in archaeology and in anthropology in general, it's just such an amazing story. I mean, it's truly like a rags to riches kind of story he he went from you know living in a in a house with no water electricity to basically becoming one of the most significant intellectual figures in in american anthropology which is it's just awesome and also being like a war vet you know on top of that as well and you know serving his country and then coming back and deciding that 
you know, archaeology and, and Wyoming was his passion to, to put it there. You know, it's, it's just fantastic. Like you said. Yeah. He has some fun stories from that too. It was great talking to him about that stuff. He was in Hawaii for most of World War II, which sounded pretty sweet to me, but (laughs) (laughs) I think they did get attacked by, he told me once, and this was, this is kind of a funny anecdote. This was in like, maybe April of last year, like kind of shortly after COVID had started. And like, he was the only one coming into the building at that time. Like the, the entire anthropology building was empty except for George prison. And so I came in to like get some field supplies and check in on things. And I went and talked to him. I was like, you know, they say you're not supposed to be around George. Like these things are, seems to be pretty serious, kind of taking out <laughs> old people. And uh, he's like, Oh, I figured I survived a kamikaze attack. I, I could probably take on a virus. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense, but whatever. <laughs> You're 95, so do what you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> it was a funny. I mean, there's not, there's just not a whole lot of people left that can like throw kamikaze attack in your face uh, about like COVID restrictions. But yeah, he he was probably you know one of maybe ten. <laughs> Oh, good night. Yeah. So kind of moving, moving beyond and looking towards the future of Wyoming archaeology, what do you think is what's coming next for Wyoming archaeology? Is it going to change much or what are the, what's the future direction? So as with the rest of the country, Wyoming's become a more cosmopolitan place, especially our department. We got people doing research in Croatia, Mexico, Peru, Alaska, kind of all, all over the place. We got, we got folks doing stuff all over the world and really drawing like a pretty interesting pool of graduate students to, to work with those folks. So in my mind, the future Wyoming archaeology really has to be, we really have to start thinking about it in, in a global scale. It's not just Wyoming, it's, it's everything. So uh, the thing, as I alluded to earlier, the thing that Wyoming does best, I think, is kind of dirt archaeology, to digging up bones, doing stratigraphy, doing geoarch, really doing foundational kind of field methods that have gone on to be used in a lot of places. So I really see the future of, of what we call Wyoming archaeology being tied up in that is really embracing this legacy of, of having an excellent field program, building foundational skills with our students and taking students that are working in other places in the world and instilling that in them so they can export some of these things to, to other places in the world and start really building up, you know, foundational skills of, of young archaeologists all, all over the place, all, all over the world, so that, we, yeah, so that we all do a better job of what we do, basically, in the end. And that's the way out. That's how I see it, at least. You had mentioned earlier today that, you know, everyone's kind of a public archaeologist now, and I agree. Like, we all do stuff in, in some regard like that, but with Frizen and, you know, Stennis Stanford and stuff, everyone going through there, like, there's something... Either it's like the demeanor of Wyoming or it's just like the attitude everyone's like so friendly, I guess, is like it teaches you to like cooperate with people well. And I definitely learned at Wyoming like how to communicate with people. Like before that, I wasn't great about it. And like especially like, you know, taking notes on how Bob presents and Todd presents and stuff. Like I learned a lot from that. And I think that probably comes from Frizen as well. So like to to wrap that into like the future of archaeology, I think Wyoming is a great school for that. And it's like probably due to the state, I would think, or at least Laramie in some way. Yeah. And I just want to add like that, the communication with just regular, regular folks, ranch folks who, you know, 
have encountered archaeology, may have collected archaeology and things like that, is something I really got out of Wyoming. And I think, you know, needs to be acknowledged more in the future. I know Jason LaBelle is doing, you know, a fantastic job of this right now and just really engaging with people who are collecting artifacts. And, you know, I think that's that's one of the things I really got out of Wyoming is that you need to really engage and and talk to these folks who are collecting artifacts. And that's how we move forward because, uh, you know, we're, we're losing sites every single day. Yeah, I think. I mean, what it comes down to is just like maintaining, maintaining the absence of pretension about all this stuff. Like in the end, like people are interested in this stuff simply because it's cool and they're curious. Like nobody goes out and picks up an arrowhead illegally because like they, they want to inflict harm on empirical knowledge. They do it because arrowheads are really cool and they're interested in it. And really the important thing in all this and the thing I think Doc Frizen inspired in a lot of people is like, don't discount these people's ideas about, about this stuff and don't look down on them about, about those ideas. Don't shame them for some of the actions they've taken. That really doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, If you're, if you develop this kind of pretension about your knowledge and your, and your ethics or whatever uh, surrounding anthropology in general, this is probably a good lesson for the field of anthropology right now, actually, but I won't go into that. Then you're just going to piss everybody off and you're going to become irrelevant and nobody's going to like you. Nobody was going to want to give you money. Nobody's going to want to do have anything to do with you because you're acting like an asshole. So the best way to really promote anything that you love is to maintain uh, a lack of pretension about it, engage people earnestly and honestly, uh, don't cheat anybody, listen when people talk to you. Just all these like just basic decency that maybe maybe Wyoming promotes it because you really can't afford to burn that many bridges because it's such a small state. It's, it's, <laughs> it's going to inevitably come back to bite you in the ass. Whatever it is, I, Doc certainly had it and, and I think a lot of us have benefited from, from seeing that in action. That's a really astute point. Yeah, I like that. It's a good way to end this. Before we end the show, uh, Dr. Pelton, what are a couple sources, you know, books, articles, videos, whatever, that, you'd, that you would recommend for anyone interested in Wyoming archaeology or becoming a state archaeologist? So, yeah, we started doing some public, more public stuff last year during COVID because you know, we usually do an archaeology fair in person. We did this virtual archaeology fair and we still have all that stuff posted on our YouTube page. So if you just Google Wyoming state archaeologist on YouTube, we got a bunch of videos about you know, how excavations are done, about rock art, about making paint, about making cordage, some kind of a combination of educational and hands-on stuff. That's a good resource that our office put together uh, if you want an entry point into this stuff. Follow us on social media. We actually have a lot of educational content on that. We usually put up something at least once a week. Right now, for instance, we're working on the a Buffalo Jump collection called the Four Buffalo Jump. And every week we're putting together like a small, like educational post about some of the bison bones from that site. Yeah, those are the two big things. There's, if you Google Wyoming State Archaeologist, a lot of stuff comes up. Just do that. Every, yeah, everybody knows how to do this by this point. <laughs> I don't actually know our handles for any of this stuff, but it's easy enough to find. UWIO Anthropology, I think is one of them, right? And then Alza, is that still the one? Yeah, and then we also have the University of Wyoming Archaeological Repository maintains a pretty active, 
presence as well. So we, we run that facility and that's on Facebook. We also have an Instagram, but I never use it. I might use it this summer more, but I should probably do better about that. Need to hire one of you uh, young millennials to do it for me. Hire David. He's the magician with that stuff. Aren't you a millennial too? You're only like three years older than me. I'm elder. I'm an elder millennial. Elder. Uh, well, yeah. Let, let us know, or anyone listening, if you want a job, hit up Spencer. Or don't. He might not want that. I'm offering a job. It's not doesn't exist yet. Another news though. We now have a store on Redbubble. If you go to redbubble.com slash people slash a life in ruins, you can get stickers. You can get shirts. You can get Carlton on a sticker and Connor on your shirt. We all know everyone's going to buy Connor's sticker anyway. So just go on there, check it out. And yeah, you can follow us on social media. Please, again, give us a review because that's how Apple recognizes you as a legitimate podcast. And we have like four reviews. So give us some more of those. Yeah. Thanks once again, Spencer, Dr. Pelton, as future Dr. Gover would say, because this is a life in ruins, we have to ask the question. You probably answered this before, but would you still choose to live a life in ruins and become a state archaeologist and just be good at pretty much everything? Oh, for sure. I love this job. This is my dream job. <laughs> like I, I wake up every day loving my job. I don't think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's unambiguous. <laughs> I'm going to be one of those people that they're going to have to kick out. So That's, that's good, man. I think that's pretty rare. So we're happy for you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And with that, we just interviewed Dr. Spencer Pelton. You can find him at apparently Google, since he doesn't know his own handles. Just Google Dr. Spencer Pelton, <laughs> University of Wyoming, uh, Wyoming State Archaeologist. That's where you'll find him. So he's the only one. <laughs> only one officer. So uh, with that, yeah, with that, we're out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So, gents, what's an astronaut's favorite part of the computer? I don't know, Connor. The space bar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I don't know why I didn't get that. <laughs> this episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.